Would you please open your Bibles to Daniel 9, as you can see from the screen. We read a portion of Jeremiah's prophecy from Lamentations 3 just a few minutes ago. You know, there was a day where Daniel had his Bible open, probably a scroll. Uh, He had his Bible open to the prophecy of Jeremiah, not Lamentations, but the book that we know by his name. And as he read, there were some things that stood out to him, things that were so compelling to him about the character of God, first of all, and then secondly, about the needs of his people, the society he was a part of, that it actually moved him to seek God for a special season of prayer. It moved him in such a way that that he decided eating is not important to me in this period of time. Dressing up is is not important. He actually attired himself in sackcloth, and and they would even sprinkle ashes over their head as a a visible sign of, of mourning, of humbling himself before God. And the duration of his prayers continued for a period of time. We don't have time to read all the way to the end of chapter 9 and even into chapter 10. But there's a season of his life where he is so moved by the word of God and the needs and opportunities around him that all he can do, the greatest thing he can do is pray. So you listen. I'll read Daniel 9, 1 through 23. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned back, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He's confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses... All this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. 
Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought, in, brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, Listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. Now listen to this. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Let's pray together. God in heaven, this prophecy written by Daniel is ancient for us now. 2,500 years plus have come and gone, and yet you are the same God as you have always been. Our hearts resonate with some of what we read. Our hearts are also confused or perplexed or just intrigued by other things that we don't fully understand in their context. But we ask that by the personal ministry of the Holy Spirit in this time, you would teach us and instruct us concerning those things that we need right now. I pray, first of all, that you would give us a clear vision of you in your great and awesome sovereignty, that we would understand what it means that you are the faithful, righteous, merciful God. And even as it compelled Daniel to pray and plead for mercy, let the greatness of your character, bring hope to our hearts and motivation to pray. We ask that you would also bring us to that place of deep and personal humility over our sin and the sins of our, our community and our nation of this world. There are new kings, new rulers and leaders over the nations of the earth right now, but all of them do their work under your sight and sovereignty. Not one of them has the power to give us life or to destroy us eternally. Only you are that king. And our sin is great, and we ask that you would give to us a clear understanding of it, that we may repent as we humble ourselves, that we may find your mercy richly supplied, mercy that heals us from the dread consequences of our sin. 
oh Lord God, we need to see you as you are, else we will continue to live life as if you do not really exist or make any significant difference in our world, but you're everything. So would you come and give us help today that we may be blessed. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, through our Christmas series, we noted that in the lives of the three women most closely associated with uh, the birth of Christ, all of them were women of faith. They were all women of the word. And we know from what was stated explicitly about some of them, but can reasonably conclude as we looked at the other texts, all of them were women who prayed. And Anna in particular is described as worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day in the temple. And I want to connect these things to you because remember, these were women who came under the power of God's promises, the power of his word, and it moved them to acts of worship and service. Well, we're encountering another Old Testament saint who also came under the life-dominating power of God's Word. And it not only changed what kind of a man he was through the years, but it moved him to pray what to me is one of the most powerful prayers in all of the Scriptures. Prayer is a vital part of the Christian life. Prayer is not simply something we do, a, a practice or a discipline, although it is a, a, an important discipline of the Christian life. I, I want you to see that it is an essential part of who you are. It should be as normal a part of the Christian life as talking is to the vast majority of you. Some of you are more reserved. Some of you are more outgoing. I'll guarantee you, all of you speak words day by day. And typically, if, if things are normal, you're talking to other people, not just to yourself. You know, prayer is a means of communication with God. He speaks through His Word. In our day and age, we respond to Him. The Spirit sometimes impresses us or, or leads us in a subjective way, and, and sometimes we respond in prayer. It might be a prayer of praise and thanksgiving. It might be a prayer of adoration. It might be a prayer of confessing our sin. It might be a prayer on behalf of some other person. We're offering petitions or supplications, but there's continual dialogue going between heaven and earth, and prayer is the means. But you know, our adversary, as he so often does, attacks us at those critical points of the Christian life. I appreciate the words that this author, Adam Stadmiller, wrote concerning prayer. You look at those words while I read through them. The less we pray, the smaller our lives will be. One of the devil's primary tactics is to help you contain your prayer life. He has no problem with you living in a 150 square foot luxury prayer apartment as long as you never discover that you have inherited a million acre ranch of prayer in Montana. He goes on. He explains what he means by the, the devil's tactic to help you contain your prayer life. Adam writes, notice I said help you contain your prayer life. This is because the devil has no ability to contain prayer itself. Prayer is spiritually nuclear in nature. It is the raw material of God and his people. Prayer is out of Satan's influence. He has no power to warp or influence a prayer's trajectory to God's throne after it has been prayed. And once a prayer is unleashed, it bounces around eternity and perpetuity, burning before the throne of God like incense. 
In the fifth chapter of Revelation, John said, The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, that's Christ. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Now, I've got to admit to you that when I pray, I don't typically think of those prayers continuing in perpetuity. As if somehow the the words, the emotion, the urgency, the content, the substance of my prayers might remain as this fragrant aroma in in heaven's throne room. But that's what Revelation 5 is telling us. Bowls full of prayers accumulated through the ages, continually ascending before the God who created all that is and rules over all things. And we sometimes think that if we just pray for 30 seconds here and maybe three minutes there that we've done enough. And we're missing the real power of this concept of prayer. It's not about checking off a list. Did you pray today? Okay, we we give you credit in the prayer uh, column for the day. Did you read your Bible? Okay, we give you credit in the Bible reading column for the day. No, there's vital communication. There's eternal work that's happening. The hand of God somehow in his divine wisdom has been ordained to be moved by the prayers of people like you and me. So no wonder Satan would want to just kind of keep you in a tiny house, 150 square foot efficiency apartment. The worst thing that could happen from the adversary's perspective is that you and I become people who genuinely know how to pray, who pray fervently, who pray without ceasing, who pray in all circumstances at all times. And I love what Stadmiller says. You know, even that image, it's out west, it's meaningful for us. I grew up in the east and um, just shared with some of our guests this morning. We only moved here two and a half years ago. And, and um, even up until that move, had spent very little time in the west. And you sometimes hear people refer to this out here as big sky country, Montana in particular, right? Oh, and it is. And we visited South Carolina last year, and as we were driving through one of those beautiful green forested areas, my wife actually said, I feel claustrophobic. (laughs) It only took a couple of years for us to just fall in love with the fact that you can see great distances. And this thing of prayer is designed to just expand your soul, expand your perspective and my perspective so that we recognize we serve a great God and great things are accomplished by prayer. One of the things I pray God will do in these four days that we have together is just ignite that fire in us to say what a treasure prayer is. What a gift of God's kindness it is. Let's do it. Now, go back to Daniel's text with me. And as we do, we're actually returning to the year 539 B.C., made reference to that. Actually, it's closer to 2,600 years ago when you add up all the, all the years. We're in 2020, and, and you add 539 to that number, and so you can see we're, we're dealing with a man who lived long ago in an age that we can hardly understand. But just to summarize the story of Daniel, he and his friends have been living in Babylon since they were young teenagers. You see, they were part of that great deportation that came as a result of God's judgment on Israel. He sent Nebuchadnezzar, the big bully in the Middle East at that time, and Nebuchadnezzar's army 
came in and just laid waste to Jerusalem and Israel. And as I said, many people were killed in, in that siege. Many people were deported. Others just scattered. They got out of town before they could be captured and made somebody's slave. Israel as a nation does not exist at this point. Oh, still as a people and still going to be recipients of God's promises, but here Daniel and, and three close friends had been deported to Babylon. So they're living in a foreign country, and Nebuchadnezzar in those days was actually trying to train them and reprogram them so that they would be courtiers, that they would be attendants in the royal uh, court. Quite a privilege, really, but if you read the whole story, you'll know that Daniel and his friends lived, as one author says, a counterculture in Babylon. They set themselves apart as servants of the Most High God in their use of food, their absolute refusal of idolatry, and their, and their devotion to prayer. Amidst all the pagan entrapments, these godly men lived by the word of God. They were doing it from their youth. Teens, young people, listen to me. It's never too early to commit yourself fully to God. You don't have to wait to go to some kind of special training to, be, to really know the Bible, to be in the Word. You can begin to open that book, and by faith, you read it, you absorb it, and you say, God, teach me, show me, reveal yourself to me. I want to be a young man or young woman who gives you honor and glory, whose life is clearly centered in you. And so for nearly seven long decades, when we come to Daniel 9, Daniel has served in the courts, not just of Nebuchadnezzar, but he outlived Nebuchadnezzar. A guy named Belshazzar came along, and Daniel had a really uh, a frightening word of prophecy for him, and, and Belshazzar's day came and went, well, now it's the third king. And this is not a Babylonian king. Did you catch that? He's a Mede. So it's a different race, if you will, altogether. This is the new bully on the Middle Eastern block. And though these were powerful earthly kings, not one of them rivaled the king of the universe whom Daniel served. And as you read Daniel's prophecy, you will not only be moved by the sovereign rule of God as displayed through all of those current events, the prophecies concerning future events, some of which have not yet been fulfilled, but you will also see that God was over it all, guarding Daniel, blessing him, protecting him, providing for him. And Daniel's response continued was, be in the word and pray, word and prayer, word and prayer, word and prayer. It really is the distinguishing mark for him, and it causes me to ask, and I want you to ask, what's the distinguishing mark about my life? There are many things that can distinguish us, but at the end of your life, will those things that currently distinguish you really matter? Our work is important. Work is God-ordained, but if at the end of our days, all we have to show is a successful work career, really, is that how you want to be distinguished at the end? All kinds of examples we could probably raise right now and say, well, maybe it'd be this, maybe it'd be that, maybe it'd be the other. But when it, it's all boiled down to what is eternally significant, your relationship with God and your relationship with others are top priority. Now, looking at this text, um, we're going to see some things that, that actually reminded me of, of George Mueller. He's another saint. Uh, you won't find him in the Bible. Uh, some of you know George Mueller well. Others of you need to become acquainted with him. He should be your friend, but he'll have to be a friend through history because he's dead and with the Lord now. George Mueller was known as a man who lived by faith, although if he were here, he would tell you, my faith is not that great. I just know a great God. 
And if you read his biography, you'll find that there were all kinds of ministry opportunities and, and the work he did with orphanages and, and missions internationally. I mean, this man never sent out an, an appeal for money or support. Uh, he wasn't a wealthy financier. Uh, he was a man of faith who believed God had called him to particular service, and he said, if God's called me, then God will provide. And the stories abound as to how God provided everything from milk for the children in the orphanage and food at those critical moments to huge amounts of money, not that he could be wealthy himself, but that he could put into funds uh, for missions around the world. I've loved this little point about the man's prayer life because we think of him as a man of faith and a man of prayer. But listen to his wisdom because what he discovered in the course of time is that as the outward man is not fit for work for any length of time unless he eats, so it is with the inner man. What is the food for the inner man? It's not prayer itself, which may almost seem counter to the whole point of this prayer week, right? Isn't prayer important? Yes, but listen to what he says. Prayer is not your food. The word of God and not the simple reading of the word of God so that it only passes through our minds just as water runs through a pipe. No, we must consider what we read, ponder over it, and apply it to our hearts. And, and I will just encourage some of you to consider the fact that maybe your prayer life is relatively small and immature and undeveloped at this point because you're actually not in the word. That'd be the single greatest thing you could do to grow a great prayer life. Be in the word. Now, I see that clearly in this passage, so let's press on here and notice just a couple of big things. First of all, the, the, the prayer life of Daniel was compelled, first of all, by the hope of God's sovereign glory. If you go back to chapter 6 in particular and read some things about Daniel's life, you become aware of the fact that daily he was a man who worshiped God and prayed. As a matter of fact, some of his rivals in the, in the political center uh, of Babylon took advantage of that. They talked Darius into writing some decree that if anybody prayed to any other god than him, uh, that they would be cast into the lion's den. And so that whole famous story unfolds because Daniel's faithful and he goes through his daily routine, which includes opening the windows toward Jerusalem, a place that's, you know, a thousand miles away, and, and praying in faith toward God for his city, for his people, uh, for the promises of God to be fulfilled. Well, they trap him. They throw him into the lion's den, but God spares his life. It, it's one of those demonstrations to us, though, that this is a man who day by day, day by day, week by week, year by year, is a praying man. He's a man who's in the Word. So this life of prayer and worship remains constant throughout those years. When we come to chapter 9, we also see that this persistence in the Word and in prayer is revealing the value that he places on the, on the Word. Um, look at verse 1 again in Daniel 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, and he gives that whole uh, bio of who this king is, but then he says, verse 2, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass. So that's how we know he's reading the prophecy of Jeremiah, and he calls it the word of the Lord, doesn't he? It's not just a religious book. It's not just his nation's history that's recorded. He's saying this is the word of the Lord. And then the little word perceived uh, appears there, and that conveys the idea that he is discerning this, he is understanding because he's been thinking about it. 
See, that's what, that's what Mueller would caution against, just that cursory reading of the word so that it's, it's a little more than water running through the pipes of your soul. No, this, this is where you, would, where you would drink it with a view of, of having that spiritual thirst quenched. And Daniel apparently had a, probably a, a literal scroll of Jeremiah's prophecy open before him, and he's reading over it. And if you do the research, you'll find out he's actually in Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 and 12 specifically, where the Lord says, I'm going to send Israel into exile, but after 70 years, I'll restore them. And he starts doing the math, because remember, he was there. When that prophecy was fulfilled initially, he saw the destruction of Jerusalem, knew what it was to be deported. He starts doing the math and he says, well, if I was, and we don't know exactly how old he was, but he says, you know, if I was 12 or 13 then, and now I'm about 80, we're here. This is about to happen. And so as a result of being in the word, valuing the word day by day, he comes to a really significant moment, and that moves him to seek the Lord. Look at verse 3. Here's how we respond to the word of God. Then I turned my face to the Lord God. That is, I, I set my face or, or put my face toward the Lord God. And, and that term, Lord God, refers to God as the sovereign ruler and owner of all. He didn't go consult with Darius who was the most powerful earthly ruler in that region at that particular time. He didn't go consult with other friends. He goes to God. And now he begins to pray, and, and he is compelled, first of all, by the sovereign glory of God. And that glory actually sparks hope within him. And so I want you to, as we survey this thing in the next few minutes, just note, note some things here. Verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. Now, confession can be with respect to our sin, or it can also be with respect to God's greatness or some other truth. So you could confess great truth. It's not always limited to confessing sin. And did you note some of these things as we read this earlier? Listen to what he says about God. Verse 4, O Lord, the great and awesome God. I'd put those two together and say he sees God in his majesty. And it's greater majesty than Darius, it's greater majesty than Belshazzar, it's even greater majesty than Nebuchadnezzar enjoyed during the days of his reign. God is majestic. Here's another thing he says, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him. What is that reference to? God is faithful. Remember, he's reading the word. He's lived through almost 70 horrible years of captivity and deportation, seen the destruction of Jerusalem, but now he's reading one of the promises of God, and he says, you know what? God said it would come to an end. There will be restoration. There will be blessing, and it moves him to pray, and part of his prayer is praising God that he's faithful. God keeps his promises. Here's the third thing. God is righteous. I love this thought of God's righteousness. We sometimes think of it as standing in opposition or antithesis to sin or corruption. And that is true. But do you know righteousness, in a, even more broad, broadly speaking, refers to God's conformity to all of his perfections. You know, because God is perfect in his holiness, he can never think, speak, or do something that would fall into the category of unholy. That's why when we sang that old hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, and, and that beautiful line, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Do you know what that means? The, there's not even the potential for a little bit of change in God. Not, not even a shade of it. 
He's the same yesterday, today, forever. So righteousness, in one sense, tries to capture some of that for us. And and Daniel is blessed, blown away, if you will, just thinking about that to God, to this Lord, belongs righteousness. It's not something that he does or kind of characterizes. It's part of who he is. There's never been a moment where God was less than he is now. And you know, there's never going to be a point in the future where you wake up one morning and God says, you know what, I'm just tired of running the universe and I'm going to take a break from my divinity. You guys are on your own. I mean, that'd be catastrophic. It sounds, it's laughable to us in one sense, but you know, there's some people whose perspective of God includes things like that. Here's the fourth thing. He's merciful. To the Lord our God belongs, and it's actually plural here, mercies and forgivenesses. Oh, that's really encouraging. Because I need mercy for this problem and that issue and this failure. I mean, I need mercies from God, and so do you, and so did Daniel. And so he's compelled to pray in hope because God is all of this and so much more. These are just a few of the attributes that that he mentions. Now, there's a second aspect of of the prayer. He's also compelled to pray because of the humility he begins to feel over sin and shame. And it's both his and Israel's. And he's saying we've sinned in many ways. Look at verse five. He just piles up the synonyms. We've sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, turned aside from your commandments and and rules. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets. I mean, he's naming it specifically. He's naming it generically. As I said, he's just piling up the, the terms for his sin and Israel's. And that leads him to say in verse 7, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness but to us, open shame. All of that actually amounts to our public disgrace. And you know, we live in a culture that wants to avoid shame at all costs. And so we have all kinds of terms, hyphenated words even. And, and, and one of the cardinal sins of our culture is to, you know, something shame someone. Are you body shaming me? And like our worst fear is that we would be publicly disgraced in some way. And I get that. Who wants to be publicly disgraced? But do you know here, this this acknowledgement of sin that actually produces real shame is a gateway into God's mercy. We've looked at this before in the Gospels. Jesus saying to uh, the crowds that he preached to and taught to, I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And he's not saying there are two kinds of people in the world, the righteous and sinners. He's actually saying the ones who think they're righteous, I I can't offer them help because what I'm offering is for those who say, I am sinful. It's a scary thing to own your sin. It's a scary thing to name it and not redefine it, tweak it, adjust it, just, you know, hang a a, a little veil over it so it doesn't seem as bad, but just to stick it out there. It's obvious to me, too, in doing a little comparison with Jeremiah's text that that Daniel is actually using some of the very terminology that Jeremiah was inspired to use 70 years earlier than that when he wrote that initial prophecy, warning Israel, if you don't turn from all these kinds of sins, judgment's coming. 
Well, Daniel's on the backside of that. But do you know something? For those who will humble themselves and acknowledge their sin, God is full of mercies and full of forgivenesses. That means repeated forgiveness. You say, but I'm so embarrassed because I was just praying to God yesterday, confessing my sin, and I really meant it when I said, oh, God, help me never do it again. And then before I went to bed last night, I did the same thing. Hey, join the club. But aren't you glad that God is full of mercies and forgiveness? Well, that's compelling to Daniel. It moves him to pray. It moves him to own the sin. It moves him to acknowledge that there really is a serious shame, a public disgrace that all of them are living under. How will it be remedied? And he repeats that term in verse 8. It's a shame belongs to us because we have sinned against you. You know, one of the interesting things to me when he says, we have not listened to you, how, would, how did God want his people to listen to him? Well, in those days, he was sending literal prophets like Jeremiah and others. And sometimes they would write down the word, uh, much of which we still have in the Old Testament. And sometimes they would speak messages, but God's point was, they're my messengers, you better listen to them. And I was thinking, you know, in our day and age, many of us don't really listen to God you're here this morning, and that's a great thing. And I'm not, I, I'm not speaking literally inspired words of God, but I do have a sense I'm his messenger. I, I'm actually just trying to unfold what he's already said in his Bible. So I'm not trying to make up new stuff or come up with new ideas. I don't have revelation given to me in the sense that Jeremiah or Daniel or the Apostle Paul did. That, that's a different time, and those were, those were different uh, works that God was doing. But we have the completed revelation of God right here. And can we really say that we are people who listen to God if we open this book for just a couple of minutes a day? When in comparison, our phones are open, our computers are open, social media is up and running, and you add all of that time together, and it's hours every day. So who are you really listening to? Two thousand four hundred twenty-two people responded to a survey that was done by a Christian organization uh, just a couple of years ago. Fifty-two percent of them said they spent five to thirty minutes a day reading the Bible. Half. 18% said that they spent 30 to 60 minutes a day reading the Bible. At the low end, 16% said five minutes or less. And there were some, 6%, who said, I never read the Bible. And also at the upper end, there was a small percent, 6%, who said one to two hours every day. That'd probably be pastors or retired people. Some of you say, I wish I had the luxury of reading my Bible for two hours a day. Maybe you do. Here's why I say that, because a, another survey that was done just put it out there as to the average media usage for ordinary people like us. And, and this is outside of work responsibilities or business-related things, but, but the average person gets a, spends three hours, 15 minutes a day on his or her phone. One person who responded to the survey even said, most of the time when I use my phone, I'm kind of in zombie mode. I pick it up to look at the time, and then the physical act of doing that prompts me to do something else. 
And we all get that, don't we? The average person spends an hour and a half on his or her computer every day. And this would be leisure. Again, we're not talking business usage. TV, two minutes shy of four hours a day. We might actually have enough time in our schedule to be in the Word one to two hours a day if we really committed to it. You know what's interesting? God never says, from Genesis to Revelation, not one time in the 66 books of the Bible does he put a time quota on you. So I'm not about to do that either, but I do think God is raising an important question for us to consider who are we really listening to? Are we really listening to him? And some of that can be measured in just the amount of time we spend listening either to him or to other sources, social media, TV, recreational outlets. I mean, all kinds of things. You, you think of how much information flows into your eardrums every day. It's a ton. Is God the priority? Now, having said that, I know some of you, again, are new Christians. You're like, oh, it's, it's kind of intimidating. Yep. There's still parts of the Bible that I'm thinking, I, I really should have a handle on this now, but I don't. But can I pause right here and say, aren't you encouraged to know that Daniel, who wrote a book of the Bible, who's 80 years old, give or take a couple of years at this particular point that we see him in Daniel 9, is still daily unrolling the scroll and saying, now what does God mean? And furthermore, I, I mean, we don't know for sure, but I doubt this is the first time he's had Jeremiah's scroll in front of him. Why did it take him until he was 80 to even see the little 70 years thing? Well, the same reason that for some of you and me, we read the Bible and there are certain days we're like, I never saw that before. But here he is at 80, give or take, still in the word every day and then responding in prayer. We don't know how long he spent in the word. Maybe he only had time that day because of some court responsibilities that were coming up to be 15 minutes in Jeremiah. I don't know. It's foolish speculation in one sense, but it's not about a quantity of time. It's actually about the value you place and the priority that you place upon God's word. And as God speaks to you, then you begin to recognize the reality that you've sinned, you've done wrong, you've acted wickedly, you've rebelled. You are among those who have not listened. And like Daniel, you'll be saying, shame of face belongs to me. This isn't on God that I'm in exile or that I'm in such trouble at this moment. This the hardship is actually God's discipline trying to get me to, to come back. But here we kind of come full circle. He's also compelled, not just by the mercies of God, by the reputation of God. And we, we need to hustle along. Look at verse 16. He says, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem. Remember, he's in Babylon praying for Jerusalem. Jerusalem is in ruins at this point. He says, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword. That is, God, your people have become an object of scorn. It's actually the reputation that many Christians and even Christian groups have today in this world because they've so either politicized their Christianity or just made such a debacle of it through their sinful lifestyles, their lack of integrity in the way they've conducted life and ministry that non-believers look with reproach upon them and for non-believers even to use the term Christian is a byword. I get that. 
And I, I feel shame and humiliation over that and wish so much that the word Christian were just rich with the grace and truth of Jesus, period. Not imported politics or, or even alternative worldviews, but just it, it would just be the pure gospel reality behind it. But Daniel's torn up with the same kind of thing, saying that your people have become a byword. But now we continue reading. Look at verse 17. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy, and for your own sake, there's the great motivation. You know, in our prayers this week, our greatest concern must be for the reputation of God. You work and live next to some people who, who the only time they think of Jesus Christ is as a curse word. And if you really engage them about the truth that you believe, that he was born of a virgin, lived his life in, in perfect conformity to God's law, died a sacrificial death on a place called Calvary, nailed to a cross, the substitute sacrifice for the sins of the world, they would laugh you to scorn. But it's not you they're laughing at. It's ultimately God. May God inspire us to pray for his reputation. But Daniel comes back around and and we're reminded again of how amazing God's mercy is. Look at verse 18. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. I mean, when you've seen your sin as it is and you're humbled in all that and that, that full list of terms and all the synonyms and, and, and all the guilt behind it is just flowing out, you're not coming to God going, hey, Lord, can you listen to me as I pray because I'm actually a pretty good guy. No, you're, you're still feeling the weight of that sin and the shame that accompanies it. But what compels you to pray, even from that condition, is that God is full of mercies and forgivenesses. Some of you right now are saying, you know what, I wish I were in a place to participate in prayer week, but I, I'm not a strong Christian, or you know, I haven't been living for the Lord lately, and I'd just kind of be in everybody's way if I showed up, and I don't want to drag this thing down. Oh, this is for you. God's mercy is for you, and if you would come, first of all, humbling yourself in your own sinfulness and say, yep, guilty, shame is mine, but God, would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me? Would you restore me? Would you begin to bless in my life so that I could even be a part of this larger momentum of people who are seeking you, turning our face to you, saying, God, be merciful to us for your name's sake. Oh, what a gift to this church that would be. Don't you dare stay away because you haven't performed perfectly in the past week. If that's the qualification, we're not having prayer week because none of us can come. God's reputation, our greatest concern. God's mercy, our greatest motivation to pray this week. And you know, when Daniel prayed, things didn't change overnight, but in short order they did. And it wasn't because Daniel suddenly prayed and nobody else had ever thought to pray before. God had given the word. It's his faithfulness. But Daniel's prayers are part of a massive restoration project that will begin shortly. I don't know what God has planned for this valley, for our nation, for the world, but I do see some great promises that he has given to our generation. Promises that I've shared with you before, like Romans 8, where God himself, God the Father, says that Jesus the Son will be the firstborn among many brothers. You read through Revelation. Maybe some of you read through the Bible last year, and so it's a little fresher on your mind as you finished up the last week of December. 
and, and you're just stunned as you read through that with the myriads of people who gather around the throne and sing praise to him. The redeemed ones who were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, cleansed from their sinfulness, given that gift of eternal life, who are assembled in heaven, and you never hear terms like thousands upon thousands, myriads of myriads, used with reference to those who suffer that final eternal condemnation. That's one of the reasons I'm actually persuaded there will be far more people in heaven than hell one day. We can talk about that later. And yes, I know what Jesus said, broad is the way to destruction, narrow is the gate, few there be that find it. I think he's making a totally different point there. But I read passages like Romans 8 or the book of Revelation, and I, sit and I look around some of our communities, some of the nations of the earth, and I say, God, Jesus does not have many brothers there yet. But maybe in our prayer week this week and some of these sessions that we've, we've, we've inserted specific prayers to pray, maybe God will use some of our prayers this week to move those things forward, not just incrementally, but maybe he's about to bust it wide open. There are a lot of empty seats in this room. Wouldn't it be great if a great awakening rolled through Utah? Wouldn't you love to have a front row seat for that? I can tell you it won't happen if we don't pray. Because prayer is a powerful tool and weapon ordained by the sovereign God of the universe to move his work forward. So are you ready to pray? I gotta tell you, I don't feel it physically right now. I didn't shake hands or hug anybody this morning, partly because I'm trying to like keep my a safe distance. There's enough disease going around and I'm diseased. My wife's home this morning, still recovering from the disease. My two daughters had it this week. Seth's the only spared one so far. His time's coming. <laughs> Physically, I don't, I, I, and even last night, I was kind of, I was, to be really honest, I was angry. Like, Lord, I can't be sick tomorrow. I mean, I can't call Kevin right now and say, Kevin, can you preach? I'm really sick. Matt's in Colorado. Daniel's got children's ministry. I guess, well, you're sitting here in the service, Daniel, so maybe you could have gone to that, but it just didn't feel right, you know, especially like at 9.45 on a Saturday night. But even there, God, in his kindness, said, hey, what have you been studying all week? Who's got all the mercies? You or me? Is, is the success of prayer week dependent upon how you or Gospel Hope feels about your prayers? Or is it about my reputation, my majesty, my faithfulness, my righteousness? So when I finally went to sleep, and I am looking forward to at least a little nap this afternoon, but there was, there was more calm in my heart. Because I thought, Lord, prayer week is about you. So I don't know what your schedule will afford this week. If we're going to follow the teaching and example of Daniel here, then what, the first thing we need to do personally is to set a high value on God's word. For some of you, and we've been talking about this a lot recently, but it just means you're going to open the Bible for yourself for the first time. And, and if, if you're a new Christian or you're just new to this, I would encourage you to go to the Psalms. They're manageable, they're accessible, they're very personal. 
that'd be a great place to start. Just get into the Psalms. And then uh, a second, thinking it through, set your hope on God's sovereign glory. Now, this passage has at least four attributes of his that are marvelous. But there are hundreds more that you could find. And I'm telling you, when you begin to see God for who he is and understand how great he is, prayer, prayer happens. So even this week, we're going to set our hope in God's sovereign glory. We're not setting our hope in our prayers. Oh, that was an awesome prayer week we had at Gospel Hope. I'm sure God's going to do stuff. I hope we come out of it saying it was an awesome week of prayer for Gospel Hope, but not because somehow we, we like gin this thing up. And, and, and had some grand pep rally. I hope it's just because as we humble ourselves before God and pray and seek him, that he just kind of moves into the place and we're like, God is here. We better bow low. Which brings me to the third point. I can tell you that if we want to derail the week of prayer, we remain indifferent to our sin and we excuse away any shame or redefine it. And we don't deal with sin as he convicts us or we self-righteously look at other people and say, well, I hope they're listening today because the Lord knows they're really bad and need to do some repenting. No, it's, it starts with me and you and together. And we're going to take some time um, through the week to repent of some national sins as, as God leads us. And then finally... Let's pray for God's reputation. It's not about gospel hope. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about his name. So we pray because of God's reputation. Pray with me now. Father, thank you for your word. We've thought a lot about prayer in this last hour. We've read scriptures that model prayer and now it's time to pray. And we ask, first of all, that you would bring us into that place of hope, seeing you in your glory as you are, recognizing you are the great and awesome God. Majesty is unparalleled. Your faithfulness is described by words like steadfast. It's great. Reaches into the heavens. No one is like you in faithfulness. No one is like you in righteousness. Thank you that you cannot think, speak, or do anything that would be a contradiction to your perfect character. Thank you that you remain unchangeable. And thank you that you are full of mercies and forgivenesses. Oh, we need it. Our sin is great. Some of our minds are so corrupted by worldly thinking covetousness and greed, pornographic images just occupy the dark corners of our minds and God together we repent of all of that and we renounce it and say cleanse us from this evil, remove it, take away the shame that accompanies all of that wickedness and as you wash away our sin, as you remove that shame we ask that you would replace it with the joy of Christ. That the fruit of the Spirit, which is so beautiful, would, would manifest itself in our lives through what we say and do. And 
And we want to be positioned right now at the start of this prayer week to pray as saints of old and saints even at this moment all around the world adore you, confess their sin, offer their thanksgiving and supplication and petitions, all of this, Lord, we, we want your reputation to be magnified. We just ask for your sovereign, gracious, merciful presence with us right now and certainly over these next four days.